Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Season 2, Episode 12, with Rob Whittle. Hey everyone, I hope you're well. It's kind of crazy times at the moment. I think I recorded the last intro on March the 10th, um, which was a little while ago. And that was just as things were starting to go a little bit strange. I think I was in France at the time and France obviously got hit with a lockdown fairly early. So since the last episode, we've managed to escape France, somehow buy a house and move in during a lockdown in the UK and uh, publish a kite surfing magazine in the midst of all this madness resell all our customers onto a new platform which was quite challenging and um, deal with this whole situation that we've been dealt where we can't go to the beaches we can't go mountain biking really I mean we can technically but we shouldn't be because we don't want to risk putting pressure on the NHS and as an opinion leader I've kind of taken it upon myself not to do a lot of things although I did have a little ride around a field on my mountain bike the other day just to keep my eye in um, but it's difficult. I think it's a, a tough time for everyone. You know, we've got all these sports that we love doing, all these things that we're passionate about, and suddenly they've been taken away from us. And I really hope it doesn't last too much longer and, you know, we find a way back to some sort of normality. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably about sick of not doing all the things you love and all the things you enjoy doing. But perhaps when we get let out we'll be more passionate than ever and appreciate the sports that we do even more than ever and that's what we've got to look forward to personally I can't wait to go kite surfing or ride my motorbikes or ride the mountain bike properly obviously with my past history of breaking my legs I don't want to put the NHS under any pressure so cycling's been off the cards for me but yeah it'll be interesting when we get back out there I think that first session, whatever it is, whether it's a surf or a swim in the sea or a kite surf or whatever, you'll be enjoying it perhaps more than the first, more than the last, and perhaps it'll be one of the most memorable sessions we'll ever have. It's interesting because it's something that our generations never really had to deal with, and it's something that might not happen again in our lifetime. Perhaps it will change the way the world is forever. Who knows? I was just chatting to a friend and last year I think I flew 55,000 miles around the world which is a hell of a carbon footprint and this year so far I've flown to Geneva in February and that's it so certainly from my perspective my carbon footprint is going to be way down and that's probably a good thing for the planet for everyone because we're all in the same situation but it's just also very sad for the people whose jobs are affected in these industries and people who are affected by it greatly you know I don't know anyone that this hasn't touched um, and affected so there we go this is the the lockdown edition except that's all I'm going to say on the matter really the podcast that I've got for you today is an absolute gem and I don't want to say this without upsetting anyone I've interviewed previously or anyone I've got coming up on this podcast because as I said I've got a few interviews lined up and now that the magazines are published I've got a bit of time to get them out so I'm going to try and get a few of these out on a more regular basis but this is without a doubt one of the favorite one of my most favorite episodes um, I've ever done and when you think of the some of the people I've spoken to over the years it's um, that's some accolade but Rob is the kite designer for Ozone um, and he's 
an incredibly interesting guy who has done an awful lot with his life and he still lives by this kind of motto that he wants to be enjoying himself and living life on the edge and if he's not out there doing crazy things then he's just not satisfied and some of the stuff he does is quite mad um you know he's been a world champion paraglider hang glider um incredibly talented bmx rider of the very very old days and he also rides motorbikes at competition level um racing in something called the isle of man tt tt stands for time trial which is essentially riding an exceedingly large and powerful motorbike at full speed around a course that takes about 20 minutes to complete if you've never heard of it google it and be prepared to have your mind blown um but Rob's just got some amazing, interesting tales from all of these adventures that he's been doing. And his outlook on life is a little bit different at times, perhaps, to some other people's. But he certainly seems to have a good handle on how he perceives what we should be doing and how we should be spending our time on this earth. And I think that's really valuable. I really enjoyed chatting to Rob. We recorded this last year in Hood River and it was just a really interesting conversation i've known him for a little while um and it was just nice to finally pin him down and have a chat to him and i know he was a bit um apprehensive about doing it but i really did value the time that we had and it was really nice it just naturally turned into a very enjoyable chat after the first few moments um as he relaxed into relaxed into it should we say anyway um without any further waffle from me um let's sit back and enjoy this great conversation with Rob Whittle. This morning I'm sat in the very nice um, apartment that I've been staying in with some of the Ozone team over here in Hood River. They very kindly let me sleep on their sofa for the week. Um, I've obviously done something right at, this, at some period in my life to gain that accolade with the boys. Anyway, um, today I have a gentleman by the name of Rob Whittle with me. Now Rob is the ozone kite designer but he's a lot more than that he does all sorts of various things and he's um, been a designer for most of his life I believe and I've met him quite a few times I think quite early on back in the UK when we were just sort of starting IK Surf Mag I seem to remember meeting you in a pub with Matt Taggart at some point down on the south coast maybe Chichester Way or something like that um, bumped into him in Mauritius and he's always got some really interesting ideas about Kites, obviously, Ozone have been on a tear recently in the industry and their products getting exceedingly well-renowned with fans all over the world and everyone who's trying it's loving it. So I thought it'd be good to sort of find out a little bit more about Rob, where he's come from and what he's been doing lately. So Rob, first question to you. I know paragliding was a huge part of your early um, career in action sports, but was that kind of the first thing that you got into uh, in water sports, action sports, or were there other things that you were doing as a kid? Uh, well, first off, Ruth, thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, secondly, you're doing a great job. It's awesome, the magazine. Thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good way of connecting the, yeah, the market together because uh, that's the modern world is online and you're doing a great job. Thank, Thank you. you. That's good to hear. Right. So what did I get into? Um, Realistically, it started from when I was a kid. I just uh, suffered badly at school because I'm not really a very uh, great academic in terms of learning the way they, they would like you to learn. Yeah. I'm much more of an outdoor 
hands-on person, I need excitement, and trapping me in a classroom was the worst thing you could do. So I didn't really do much in the classroom, but as soon as I got out of the classroom, it was all about trying to find um, a meaning to life. And because when it's actually that bad at school, you search for an escape, and my escape was uh, BMX bikes. Okay, cool. And I, I wanted to motorbike, but my father was he, <laughs> he was into motorbikes, but he was just like, nah, you he knew I was a bit nuts, yeah. and uh, he knew what the course of that would be if I got my hands on one at that age. Yeah. And there was already plenty of trips to the hospital, and a motorbike would just exacerbate that scenario. Yeah, and BMXs can be dangerous enough yeah. when you're so pushing we'll, them we'll, to the limit. we'll let him have a BMX, and uh, I, we were racing and having lots of fun with my, my with my mates. But um, I was crap at racing because I'm not a big guy, and you need to you need some power. So I didn't really have any uh, race pedigree as such. So I just got into jumping, and I would jump anything, and yeah. literally. It was just searching for more airtime. All yeah. I ever wanted to do was jump as big as you could possibly jump. And back then, we were jumping um, for fun. We were yep. jumping either two cars sideways or one car lengthways. Holy yeah. cow! Just with a just with a, a ramp that we set up in the garden. Just kind of something thing. you'd mo- yeah. botched up with some bits totally. of wood that you found kicking yeah. about. No, no helmets. No. Yeah, no, no knee pads. Gear, just, just sending it. Just going for it and. Uh, this sort of multiplied into wanting more and more and we'd just push those limits, take the beatings and get up and do it again, you know, it was, uh, and that's where it started. And the BMX scene back then was huge because it was like a really booming industry, you know, it was was one of those sort of, aside from skateboarding, but it sort of blew up at that kind of similar level, didn't it? You know, every kid had a BMX, every kid was building jumps in their back garden or going down the local park where someone had dug a <laughs> load of holes in the woods and exactly, was just like exactly. yourself left, right it, and centre. For me, it was a case of get home, tell my mum I had no homework, whether I did or I didn't. Yeah. No, I haven't got any tonight. Yeah. Jump on my bike and disappear. And just be gone. And that was it. And try and, and forget the hassles of school. And forget the, that. Oh, I, I mean, I was amazing at switching it off. As soon as the bell had rung and I was going home, it was just like, oh my God, right, let's go. Out let's there. go get it and uh, fulfill yourself that evening and go back to school for another day of hell and same thing repeatedly you know we, we were just every day at weekends all day you know parents just didn't see us it yeah was just, just gone all day go to the track and i mean it's a, the school thing's an interesting one because i didn't enjoy going to school i i mean i liked the social side of seeing my friends but mm-hmm. i hated the academic side of having to learn and the teachers and the school i went to i didn't feel was very good um, which is interesting because I know a few people I went to school with will listen to this and lots of people that I went to school with loved it because they fitted into that mould of team mm. sports you know they're in the rugby team they're in the cricket team they, they were academic they were good at getting good grades and I was quite good at writing I think English was my favourite subject but mm. I just didn't really enjoy it and it's interesting that you say that because so many people even now in this modern world we try and push kids into this channel where you have to excel at this one thing and you know your your GCSEs if you don't get those that's it your life's over and your A-levels if you don't get those your life's over and if you don't get to university and get a degree your life's over and it's like actually it's bullshit rubbish you know well, I, I mean for some people it's perfect and for some people it works really well probably for the majority of people but there's a lot of people that don't quite fit that mold mm. and sometimes they just get left by the wayside and it's almost criminal it is criminal it's a uh, you know uh, it's a very difficult thing for me to look back on now and recognize whether it was positive or negative in terms of the end result because 
uh, I feel personally, you know, regardless of how anyone else wants to see it, personally I feel super successful just because uh, I live the life that I want to live. Um, we're not talking financially or anything because, you know, we, we do know that. We're in the car industry. <laughs> yeah, we're, we, we're in this for passion more than we're in it for pounds or for, for dollars. Um, but sometimes I, I think that, you know, failure always potentially leads to success because you have to, nobody just has success straight off the bat. You have to have some failure in there that guides you towards what is success. So maybe those schooling years being as bad as they were, were actually setting me up to be the kind of um, uh, self believer that I am because, you know, you weren't getting that from school. They're so not going to believe in you, but to... I'm not going to give up. Yeah. And I know that I can do some things, even though they're asking you to perform in a goldfish bowl and then they release you into the ocean. Well, hey, you know, the goldfish bowl, it's such a tiny, it's, it's insignificant, really, because then you become a human being. And, you know, the classic thing with school is that you do all this learning, but they prepare you not for life. Yeah. You know, they just prepare you to be able to repeat some silly dates and figures. And for sure, uh, there's some great things to be learnt as well there. But, you know, it, it's a bit of a, a bit of a waste, or I, I see it as a, a restriction. And we should be embracing people's individuality. And that would make the whole world a better place rather than conformity, whereby you strip people from thinking um, even logically sometimes, you know, we get indoctrinated with archaic ideas and archaic systems when we are obviously in, you know, uh, life is a fluctuating, always changing yeah. scenario. Yeah, so the corner. Why are they, why do they do that? But, you know, who knows? Who knows? It is a, it is a, it's an interesting topic and it's one I think that still gets overlooked even today. I've got um, a cousin who's a singer and she did a post recently about, oh, you know, school's not the be all and end all because you know I was terrible she was terrible at school and you know failed all her grades but you know she's followed up her passion which was singing and dancing and she's doing really well at it yeah. which is great and I think you know you mentioned passion there and I think as long as you're passionate about something you know if you just want to sit around and do nothing and you yeah. know you've got no goal or no focus in life then that's you know perhaps not a great place to be because things like depression and things like that can set in but as long as you've got a passion for something and that could be school it could be learning it could be being academic or it could be sports or mm. you know playing team sports or action sports or whatever as long as you're passionate about something I think that's the real key to exactly you know success yeah. because then well, you can find happiness yeah and passion leads to drive and if you've got drive then um, chances are so long as you keep on the path of of what you believe in then uh, some form of success and like I say Success doesn't have to be measured by anybody else. It's only measured by yourself. Yeah. And so long as you keep that in perspective and don't worry because you also find that, hey, you're in this thing on your own anyway. Uh, so long as you don't really care what anybody else thinks and you just get on doing what you want to do and be who you want to be, chances are you'll end up happy and successful in whatever you choose to do. Yeah, good things will come from it. Mm -hmm. So you're riding your BMX, not enjoying school. How did you get into design? Because you know, oh, was, well, that, was, that a, was that a passion from early on? Were you designing the ramps? Were you designing your own BMXs? Or was it something that came later? Um, no, it's actually just something that came later. Uh, 
back in those days when I was riding bikes, my father was seriously into hang gliding. Okay. He was into hang gliding and motorcycles. I couldn't have a motorcycle because it was too dangerous, but he bought me a hang glider on my 16th birthday because that was fine. Yeah, you know, I don't know how. And hang gliders were really safe back then. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure of the logic in there, apart from the fact that at that moment that was his passion. But it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because, um, actually, although the BMX was a part of my freedom as a as a kid, when I was 16 and got these hang gliding lessons, um, it was like being given. It was actually the ultimate gift, you know, and I mean the ultimate gift because I truly found freedom and um, what's the word, um, a way or something that just I fit like a glove immediately and it was just a way that I could express me, yeah. uh, you know, and in the beginning you're not doing anything crazy but just getting into the air and flying and recognizing that I, this is me. I'm in yeah. control of this wing. I am effectively a bird. And I used to, when I was sitting at school, not doing anything in those classes that I should have been doing, I was normally staring out of the window watching the seagulls soaring the school building. And I was just fascinated by birds. And lo and behold, a few years later, there I am flying like a bird. And it was just uh, the beginning of an amazing sort of story in free flights, really. Yeah. Um, it must have been incredible to sort of you know, if you're feeling a bit oppressed at school and you're, you're sort of dealing with that and you're locking it away and then suddenly you're jumping off a hill and the whole world has opened up. You but, can go yeah. wherever you want, you yeah. know, do yeah. whatever and you that, want. No one's exactly, telling you anything. You're just your own master, basically. That is exactly what it was. It was just, it was the ultimate gift. It was, my God. Because you begin to think that this whole thing's just a load of shit. You know, it's like, seriously, this is rubbish. And uh, yes, I was given, you know, the BMX was was making it acceptable yeah but um well, i guess you like jumping on the bmx and now you're jumping yeah, all i wanted to do was for like you it was just the most air. air time just, you know it's like you know, the ultimate air time as high as possible as far as possible and then uh, yeah so then i got hang into hang gliding um yeah like i say it fit like a glove i just it just everything worked um started flying competitions quite quickly because, yeah cause you mentioned the bmx racing did you have a competitive nature or did that just sort of come because you found you were good at the hang gliding, you had a skill set, and therefore you sort of fell into the competition side of it? Well, the funny thing is, I think my competitive nature is one of the only positive things that came out of school. Okay. Because when you're beaten down to the point that you're kind of starting to believe that you're rubbish, then uh, you kind of almost turn everything into a competition because you're just searching for any form of success to to, to, to hang on to, yeah. you know, to, to grow with or to, to just not feel so rubbish. Um, and that turned out to be flying. Um, and yeah, ended up being British champion and then worked my way up to world champion. And, was this still uh, quite at a very young age? Did you have quite, yeah, yeah, I quite was, a fast ascent within the sport? Oh yeah, I, I was like the sort of uh, the crazy prodigy kid who was going to kill himself and was completely nuts and pushing. maybe he might win something before he kills himself yeah, and yeah. Then, pushing all in the, the old garden like oh he's gone thank goodness for that we can get back to winning again yeah uh pushing all the boundaries and what people thought was possible and just generally being a complete and utter lunatic but at the same time um flying competitions doing really well and 
yeah, I ascended sort of uh, up to the top of the the rankings, and I was involved at that time with a company called Airwave in the UK. They employed me to be a test pilot as well, which is you know trimming and refining the gliders so that we can keep winning world championships and things like that. Yeah. The British team at the time was undoubtedly had the best depth and. You know, we went around the world just cleaning up everything. And this was at a time as well, like, you know, BMX was booming when you're into that, but I remember hang gliding being a big sport in England. Like, yes, you know, yeah, we'd yeah. drive down along the South Downs and there'd be, you know, lots of hang gliders, of hang gliders around. Yeah, you yeah. know, you don't see it so much now with paragliding, or maybe I'm not in the place where I would see it, but it seemed like it was, I don't know, maybe in that period of time, things like windsurfing and BMX, yeah. these sports kind of exploded. People yeah. were obviously looking for an outlet to do various things, maybe now there's just too many well, of them. Well, it was so. really the, the sort of beginning of the true um, leisure industry era. Yeah. Before that, it was much more, you know, football, cricket, rugby, yep. you know. These outlets weren't there, so I guess when yeah. a new outlet came yeah. along, everyone was seizing on well, it. Well, there was a lot of team sporting, and then all these uh, exciting sports are very individual, and yep. I think there was a lot of individuals who don't fit into team sports, who are ready to jump onto exciting stuff that came along. And that, you know, some of that was windsurfing, some of that was hang gliding, and you know, and here we are today with you all know, the things that we're doing. There's more exciting sports than you can shake a stick at. Yeah, I was riding on the river yesterday and it was like, we, I was kiting with Brandon. There were loads of people kiting. There were loads of people windsurfing. There were people downwind paddleboarding. There were yeah. people downwind foiling. There were people yeah. out on wings. It was just like, <laughs> look at all these people in this space using various tools just to have a good yeah. time. You know? Yeah, it's beautiful. I got to say, it's very uh, inspiring to recognise that. My God, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can really occupy it. Just having a great time yeah you can feel you can feel quite a lot of hours in the day can't <laughs> yes you? you can so did you ever have any like near misses with a hang gliding you're obviously a bit of a gung-ho young pilot was it you know you're pushing the limits were there a few times and you were like oh that was close yeah I had um, lots of them but <laughs> somehow I was uh, young flexible and incredibly lucky I yeah. mean incredibly lucky it's some of the stuff that happened too detailed to go into, but um, unheard of things happening and literally walking away from things that you have, shouldn't have unfortunately from. killed other people. And I just kind of bounced and got up and holy shit, don't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's carry on. Yeah. Found the limit of that boundary. Yeah, exactly. Not going to push that. But. Um, it, but, it, you know, uh, again, it was that connection. I just had that feeling. And that was what got me into uh, the design and oh, into the testing side of things. And once you're in testing, that slowly turns into design. because yeah, because you kind of know what needs to be changed. And yeah. the only missing component, I guess, is you explaining that to the designer versus you getting the skills the designer has to then make exactly. those changes. Yes. And uh, but that that didn't happen in hang gliding. I, after a, a few, uh, I'm one of those people that needs to be continu continually stimulated, and the stimulation for me is the learning period, and I, I love the accelerated learning period. There's, to me, there's nothing more satisfying than being rubbish at something, because that means that you have the most fun in your learning, because step by step, you are going to, you have the most potential to improve. Yeah. So you take that on board, and you and you you know you know how it is. You get given something new that's addictive, and 
it doesn't matter how rubbish you are, you just put the hours in because it's so much fun learning and learning and learning. Once you're good, kind of the fun's gone because you're yeah, good. The learning plateau yeah. tails off. It's harder to improve every time you get frustrated. Yeah. And uh, you've had the experiences. So then I want the next thing. So after a few years of sort of 10, eight years of hang gliding, pretty much full on all the time, I just moved into paragliding because that had arrived. And um, straight away, paragliding was sort of just another fairly easy sport for me because I was flying and it was just transferring some skills and um, ended up in testing and working with designers and slowly you realize that a lot of designers don't want to listen to their test pilots. They just think they've got it figured yeah. out. And it, it starts to get frustrating. And um, yeah, eventually when we started Ozone, it just so happened that suddenly there was an opening. I had loads of knowledge. I knew how to use the program and next minute, here we go. You're and into it. Ever and so since when then, you, it's been good. When you started paragliding, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a very similar sport to hang gliding, but I remember the, the sort of the issue with hang gliding, you'd see people driving around with them on their cars. They're big, yeah. you know, aluminium poles, bits of cloth. They were quite agricultural in their design. And I yeah. guess even the wing shape, okay, it's a delta wing, but you know, it's sort of like you're limited by the spars and yeah. various things. Whereas, uh, you know, a, hang glide, a paraglider is almost, you know, the shaping, the design of it you yeah. can do this you know the bridling how you do things it's almost like a whole other world but it fits in the boot of your car yeah so it's got to be a sort of a and way more attractive that's fundamentally what killed or what uh, not killed hang gliding but um was there was a shift in popularity from hang gliding to paragliding purely because you know, it's easier. You stick it in the boot of your car, it takes you five minutes to rig it up. It doesn't take up massive space in it's your not heavy. garage. It's, it doesn't weigh 35 kilograms or 40 kilograms like they did back then. Yeah. Um, and you can go on a cross country. You know, you can land 100 kilometers away and hitchhike back and with all your gear and you're good to go. With a hang glider, you land 100K away, first you <laughs> hitch back and get your car, then you drive back again and pick up your the glider and then you drive back again to get home so it's just yeah you've suddenly you know, done 400k yeah. just here to, here you just you can jump on a train you know with all your kit and you're back and jobs are good and so it that that was what was uh definitely appealing for many people with the paraglider yeah and how sketchy was it because with with all new sports we're seeing it with the wings now where i think in five years we'll look back and go god they look pretty funky you know yeah, or, you yeah. know we, we'd got yeah. that completely wrong and it happened in kiting you know two line kites they do sort of look similar but we sort of settled on a almost like design parameters that seem to work where most yes. people are making good things yeah. so those early days of paragliding were there some sort of you know you're testing the things were there some pretty dodgy wings coming out that you were having to jump off a cliff and sort yeah. of go yeah this isn't quite what it should be well the early days of paragliding were quite interesting because Initially, the paraglider was used literally to fly off the side of a hill or a mountain in the Alps and land at the bottom. Yeah. That was the excitement. Take off, fly, land at the bottom. And your flight would be lasting five minutes. And okay. it was always descending to the landing field. And yep. most people were flying early in the morning because it was nice and quiet and calm. Yeah, and, and less wind. It's like, oh, look at this beautiful view. Lo and behold, everybody wants more. So then yep. we start flying them in thermic conditions and we're using the thermals to stay up like a bird or a sailplane. And as soon as that started happening, then the accident started happening because that thermal lift has moving air. Where yeah. there's moving air, there's turbulence. The paragliders weren't really designed for the 
air that we were trying to fly them in. So they were collapsing in the moving turbulent air, not reopening, people hitting the ground. Suddenly what was this amazing massive sport across the whole of the Alps was for, killing for lots two of years had this, um, you know, was just huge following and loads of people doing it. And as soon as it started to sort of uh, thin a few out through these accidents in, in turbulent conditions, um, it got a pretty bad reputation very quickly because, you know, there was sort of for a few years there in the early 90s, there was a, a decent amount of people getting killed or seriously injured you know throughout the summer spring summer seasons uh, so it really slowed it down but what it did do was put the whole design emphasis on working towards safety yeah because we didn't you've got to stop this problem yeah to but let this sport grow it can't carry on uh, like that the main problem actually is pilot awareness but you can't make everybody aware so what you have to do is build in safety to compensate for that lack of pilot awareness yeah so um yeah it all went on towards safety um, for sure there were some very interesting times testing some very dangerous dodgy wings and you know the there were narrow escapes uh, uh, you know I think I've thrown my rescue parachute sort of over ten times to and when you've thrown your rescue parachute that's like last ditch that's your really last chance like after that uh, you hope that works otherwise you're hitting the ground fast enough to probably be seriously injured or dead so um, yeah it was pretty crazy in those times there was lots of lots learning of high to be risk done. learning yes. and but as you see today that's uh, produced a sport now that's uh, and or it's produced wings that are so good now that virtually anybody that wants to go paragliding you know if you get one of the beginner intermediate wings they're incredible the performance is unbelievable you know, the, the performance of a beginner intermediate wing today is better than a competition wing that I was flying back, back in the day. 1992. And yet it's a hell of a lot safer too. You can literally fly it, uh, a bag of potatoes could fly it safely. You know, it, the pilot is almost irrelevant. Yeah. You know, it, it's going to fly well. That's so amazing. Isn't he's it? only steering it to the landing field. Ian Hannay, he's just learned, hasn't he, with his yes. son? Yes. And he was telling me a little bit about that, and it just sounded like. Yeah, I know Tom Beaton as well, who's the Ozone rep in the UK. He learned, I think, last year or two years ago. Right. And um, yeah, something I'm quite keen to get into. Unfortunately, Mary and I decided to spend money on motorbikes two years ago instead. So that's just hoovering that, all that's our That's not spare a bad cash, option either. Which isn't a bad <laughs> option. But I was, I was chatting yesterday with Brandon Shide, and he's, um, you know, as a kiteboarder here, and he's just learned to fly, and he's paragliding and speed winging around all these hills. And he was just sort of telling me about it. And I think it's one of those sports I, I always thought, oh, well, I'll do the motorbiking now. And then when I get a bit older, I'll get into it. And then mm -hmm. Brandon said something interesting yesterday. He said, well, I want to be an old paraglider, but I also want to be an old experienced paraglider mm -hmm. that is a good pilot. Yeah. And I think it's got to be one of those sports where just the amount of time you spend in the air is just giving you experience. And yeah. it's just not one of those sort of fast learning things. It's just, yeah. you know, hours that you're putting in, I guess. Yeah, well, there are, to me, it's quite simple. There are, there are sports that are, you know, and kite surfing is one of them, that are, are basically not life-threatening. Yeah. No matter how hard you do it, you're fundamentally safe. You know, yeah. And it's one of the reasons I like it, because you can crash like a lunatic and you get away with it. It's all good. Once you start 
sort of dabbling in sports that can uh, kill you quite easily because gravity doesn't take any prison prisoners. Um, it takes more dedication. Yeah. Um, it, it, the you know it, whether you're racing motorbikes or flying hang gliders or paragliders, these kind of dangerous sports they require you to be in them and doing them regularly so that you are keeping these uh, skills current it's not the kind of thing that oh I'll just go for a quick fly today yeah. and have a dabble if you're yeah. dabbling at it the chances are you're gonna get a slapping sooner or later because you just you shouldn't dabble at them you've you got know? to be fully committed be committed enjoy them they are fantastic they'll bring you more satisfaction than you can believe but you have to respect them and something like kite surfing and uh, you know I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't need respect but it doesn't need a life-threatening type of respect it just needs a yeah I got to be a bit careful mainly for the other people yeah not for yourself whereas yeah. when you go do those other sports it's really for you yeah you, you better really watch out. Be, be thinking about it yeah and so you started with ozone was that with the paragliding division or was it when you started was it with the kite side of things no uh, I started ozone with uh, with the two partners um, because we were kind of sick in, of the market and the people in or the, the companies in the market just sort of profiteering and not worrying about the sport of paragliding yeah because we were very involved in the sport then we were you know in the British team and winning competitions kind of and, it, it, and you want your sport to be uh, well represented and yeah. we didn't think it was being well represented and there was too much emphasis on making money and not enough on nurturing the sport in the right way and not enough on safety and so on and so forth. So we started Ozone to be uh, different, really, and to, to do what we thought should be done. And um, it turned out to be great. And I, I, I'm pretty happy to say that hand on heart, Ozone has, uh, not only Ozone, but Ozone has done a really good job in, in, on improving safety and perception and knowledge. And, you know, it's, it's uh, it's a company that is sort of dedicated to giving back and to feeding the business, not just, the, sorry, not the business, but the sport with, um, with the kind of knowledge and uh, responsibility that people should have for it. You know, if, if you're in the business, you should be responsible for the business and the sport and make those things as good as possible for, for your own sake and for the public's sake really as well. How hard was it in those early days of the company to sort of break into the paragliding market? I mean, were there some pretty established players that you were going up against who obviously probably had some good backing and things like that, and then here's, you know, three guys decide to set up a company based on passion and, you know, not yeah. so money-driven and let's give back to the sport. Was that quite a difficult process? Because I imagine I was chatting to someone yesterday about their business that they set up, and it's like you go from being a a rider or a test pilot or something and then you go oh yeah you know I'll start this business and then once you get into it you're like whoa there's a whole lot more going on here that you know the manufacturing yeah. the testing the d distribution the sales you know all these things it must have been quite tough it, it was relatively tough fortunately uh, at that time uh, I was very well known and super prominent yeah um, Mike one of my partners back then was um, British team leader okay very good accountant so he took care of that side of the business we started it on a shoestring we had absolutely nothing we had to borrow some money from friends and for three years we didn't pay ourselves a penny kind of yeah traveling around on 
nothing. You yeah. Know, just just making it work. It was it was through dedication and belief and passion that it it, it all happened. But uh, the other partner, Dave, was Dave Pilkington, was amazing with the sort of the development side uh, of manufacturing and getting the products to where they needed to be. And the whole thing, yeah, it was a struggle, but uh, we were very lucky that we started it when we did with who we started it with. And yeah, as I said, I said to someone the other day, there was not even any talk of business. Yeah. There was purely, you know, we didn't care about profits or anything. We were just solely into it just making it happen yeah you know it wasn't there was no idea of the future and where we're going to be or whatever it's now just put a hundred percent into what we're doing now and uh, we'll see where it takes us and it, it's taken the paragliding to uh, I, I think I can confidently say that they're the paragliding department or the paragliding side of our company is uh, in a very real organic way has grown to be pretty much one of the biggest most respected manufacturers because um, we've got really great product and we're not trying to force it down anyone's throat you know it, the ozone philosophy is that, you know if people like it they'll fly it and it, it works yeah so it's yeah. like we're try it yeah we're not we're not we're not a branding you know massive marketing and branding company where we're just product driven we're just product based and at the end of the day we just prefer people to be flying the wings because they feel good not because they necessarily want to associate with a brand image because their satisfaction actually comes from a great flight not being linked to the biggest brand or the socially acceptable brand it's like who you know yeah who cares did you enjoy it yeah did well, it put a smile it. on your face that's what counts yeah, it's not about looking cool or trying to be trendy. No, I mean, for, for a lot of people it is, no problem, carry on, do that. But uh, we're a bit more rootsy than that. And yeah. We're proud to be a bit more rootsy than that. And how is it when you, you know, you, you're, you're setting the company up, you're taking on the design side of it. So there must have been a, a, a wing which was the first wing that you had designed and then got the prototype back and then flown. That must have been quite an incredible feeling to sort of be like, this is not just something I've told a designer what I want to do and they've maybe not listened and it's not quite right. This is yeah. 100% my creation that is now letting me fly around. How was that? Uh, it was amazing, actually. I was, it, I, it wasn't fully me. It was me and Dave Pilkington working together. Yeah. But uh, because Dave wasn't a test pilot, or a designer. He'd written the CAD software, so he knew how to use yeah. the software. Uh, he needed that Connection. link in between, and we were very good with each other. And so he was sort of showing me how to use the program that he developed, and uh, we built this thing together. And yeah, it was fantastic. It was very. Uh, but to this day, it's the same thing. I get super excited every time a prototype arrives, or you know, when I'm making one because there's nothing better than receiving an, what you've had as an idea in your hands and then go out and see if what you were perceiving might happen is actually happening. And you know, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but uh, we had a wing called the Octane and it was pretty much everything I do, I want a sports car. 
yeah you know equate it to cars i want everything to react and to be as engaging and as you know who doesn't get into a sports car and have a smile on their face yeah of course you do it's amazing yeah that, that's what i want it handles this power it does yeah. everything that i want it to do it's like wow yeah and uh the octane was probably the first sports car to to arrive in the paragliding scene and everybody loved it and pretty much from then on it was this is our recipe yeah they, what they want what we want we've, yeah we've just got to get it to them yeah you know just got to and keep uh, following that design yes, process and it doesn't mean to say you get it right every time but that's what you're looking for so and and yeah we to this day obviously a school glider is a school glider but it's still or a kite or whatever it still has to have some connection to still being sports car related to having a bit of performance to in being pretty you good it. you know <laughs> yeah can't just be sort of some old drudgery <laughs> yeah for cortina or something no, that's mooching no, down no. the road I mean, doing the in, job getting you from reality, a to b but in reality you can learn to to drive in a lamborghini yeah it, you know it's still only the same basics it's not the ideal car to learn in. Yeah, but and it'll can. spank you quite hard if you get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it'll cost a lot. And it'll cost a lot as well, wouldn't it? It's a bit cheaper to panel beat a full Cortina than it is but, a uh, beat, but yeah. Yes, it, we don't all have to learn in Nissan Micras. Yes. Yeah, they should just be taken off the road. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, but it was a lovely moment. And uh, that got us quite a lot of notoriety because uh, I think the market was ready for this kind of different approach yeah the, something yeah. quite something good. a bit more real and a bit more exciting and you know uh, and we were truly living what we were sort of preaching or not preaching but what we wanted to deliver deliver and traveling around the entire globe doing demos and making people aware of what we were doing and how we we're trying to do it and yeah it all worked and awesome it's happy days today and then it was around was it 2000 2001 that you started the kite surf division yeah yeah, yeah. my oh yeah pretty much my addiction to wanting new things happen all the time just because i can't help it yeah um we made a couple of kite prototypes just for fun then matt came onto the scene and was floating around it's like oh yeah let let's get matt and let let's let's do a kite business so talked to Matt and he was all excited so uh, that was that because <laughs> I was all excited straight away like oh yeah more things to design and more new things to learn so it just yeah it started from there and it was all about snow kiting then because uh, the Alps were nearby yeah and uh, I love snow sports as well skiing and snowboarding and we went went up had a day sort of pioneering snow kiting with some other peeps and it was just amazing and ran back to the office to tell the other guys man we've just found the best sport ever you're not going to believe this it's going to go massive of course it didn't go massive but it was a funny one wasn't it we I had remember so much fun pretending it was going to. in the early <laughs> days of kiteboarding like this snow kiting was kind of there and everyone was talking about it and i remember i think i first went uh, when did I first go? I went to Iceland. Must have been two thousand four or something well, like that. Right. So I've been kiting for a few years. Yeah, but that's early. And that was early. So like I had this trip opportunity to go to Iceland. I went to Iceland, which was just amazing. Anyway, we were only there for a weekend. I think Iceland Air covered all the flights, so we rocked up with kiteboarding gear, snowboards, boots. They paid for all the excess luggage, and because we knew it was expensive, it was uh, it was four of us on the trip. I think it was Chris Ball, Neil Hilda, myself, Ian. 
grey and also Dave Sims doing the photos. And so we just said, well, it's really expensive over there and we all want to have loads of beers. So we, we'll just take like two or three crates of beers each and two bottles of rum each. So in our, like, I've never packed a, a bag before that weighs sort of like 90 kilos, yeah. but there's like three crates of Stella, rum, all this stuff, kites, all the gear packed in. And off we went to Iceland and we were super Beautiful. excited. And it's, you know, it's, it's Iceland, it's mind blowing. Mm. We met up this local guide who had this truck that was, you know, jacked up on these of massive course. wheels yeah. to go up the glacier yeah. and everything. And he took us I this little- I think I even remember the article. Uh, yeah, like, and it was- a massive truck is massive, now. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. massive truck Huge that drove wheels. over the glaciers. So we sort of go up to a little pad, we're staying there, we're drinking all our beer, having a great time there was a lake out the front we were kite surfing on the lake and then when we were there it was just nuking windy and he was like we can't go to the glacier it's too windy we can't go to the glacier so for three days we were sort of housebound in this cabin drinking <laughs> all a this lot of beer alcohol. with a lot of alcohol <laughs> going into Reykjavik with all the very beautiful Icelandic women just having an absolute blast and we're kite surfing on the lake and I think it was the last day they were like, okay, I think it's okay to go up the glacier. We should be all right. There's not a lot of wind forecast, but fine. So off we went up this glacier and we're in this big Russian, like we drive the big truck to the bottom of the glacier, then this big Russian truck with like eight massive wheels to start driving over all the crevasses, gets us to the bit where we're going to snow kite. We're sort of excitedly digging this kicker. And I absolutely loved it because at first it was windy and I was sort of, you know, jumping off this kicker and it was like, well, when you try and do a handle pass on a kite back then, it was really hard because you're really powered up, you have to really yeah. edge, you have to really pull it. But suddenly, because there's so little friction, yeah. you're gliding across the snow, you're hitting this kicker and you're passing the bar like as if it's nothing. Then, and you're just like, yeah. wow, this sport's awesome. And then I think I got excited and I thought, I'm just gonna disappear off and like ride around this glacier and I did. And of course I dropped the kite and the wind dropped and it was a, I think it was a North Rhino or something like that. And it was just not relaunching. And of course I've got snowboard boots on. So every time I'd relaunch the kite, which was really hard because kites didn't relaunch back oh then. So I was like pulling, yeah. pulling on one line, trying to get it, get it set up, launch it. And then I'd just get it to the top of the window and I'd be putting my bindings on and then the kite would just overfly, fall out of the sky and I'd start the process again. And I think after about an hour of just trying to get back to where I was, I was cursing. I was like, this boy's stupid. I'm over it. It's ridiculous. And I think I did eventually get back to where I was. I was like, where have you been? I was like, oh, you know, crash the kite. And I didn't go for about another year. And then I went to the Pyrenees to go snow kiting. And I sort of told a few people how awesome it was and how great it was and it was going to be brilliant. And of course, we get to the Pyrenees. And then, you know, there was just no wind. And we were at this airfield, which was really, had become famous for snow kiting. And I had a friend that I used to work with, with Sunsail. And he had said, oh, look, I've bought this chalet. It's in the Pyrenees. I'm seeing all these people snow kiting. You've got a kite magazine. Come have a week Let's go. and do it. And it's windy all the time. It like funnels down this valley. There's always people snow kiting. So of course we went there. We took um, Christian Black, the photographer. Mm, My brother went, yeah. So the three of us went, we were all lamped on it. We built a massive kicker. We were going to jump across the road and it didn't blow the whole week. Yeah. So the whole week we'd go and buy a lift pass and go snowboarding. And I was like, you know what? This is the fundamental problem with snow kiting is that it's hard enough to find wind and sea in the same location and it's really hard to find wind and snow that's not gusty that's usable in yeah. the same location and i think that's probably why it never exploded like yeah. we did because i remember you guys chatting to you you were like well all the snowboards once they realize they don't need a lift ticket yes and they can just use the kite then all the snowboarders are going to come across and it was like the biggest sport like you say that never quite happened which is yes. still awesome if you get to do it you oh know. hey um it's always great if if your dream comes true but sometimes it doesn't and you know um i can safely say that 
because of our dedication to snow kiting, it took us to some incredible places. We had some unbelievable times, you know. Uh, we're all paraglider pilots. We were flying off everything. Yeah. You know, jumping off jumping mountains, off mountains cruising, cruising down, cruising, huge jumps, flights, um, ripping around in beautiful powder fields as you know far as the eye can see. And you're in the back country, which yes. is just the most stunning place to be in the mountains because there's nobody around. Literally, middle of nowhere. It, it's it's absolutely amazing. But unfortunately, it takes a level of dedication that most people are not prepared to put into it. And I totally understand because you can go out there every weekend and get skunked and you just, you don't get anything. And that can be continual for a long time. Or there's no snow. Yeah. Or you get there and there's wind and no snow or you know it's just too many variables the mountains are a difficult. cruel place when it comes to the weather i mean yes. it, we did a snowboard season a couple of years ago and, and it was luckily the best snow season they've had in a lifetime so yeah. we were we scored and it was great and it was brilliant but then mary went back and did a season this season and the first powder day i think was sort of middle of january and she'd been there from the beginning of december you know yeah. it, they're a cruel mistress the mountains they're beautiful oh. when they're letting you in when they're not when wanting they're not, to play, you're just like, oh, this is, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it didn't go huge, but uh, it doesn't matter because it's still there. Yeah. And for those people that do enjoy it and love it and are passionate about it, it is very special. You know, it's a great way to, if, you, if you're in a winter spot, it's a great way to take advantage, you know, winding nowadays, especially with the equipment, because it is so good. Winding up the side of mountains, landing at the top, free skiing or boarding down, throw it back out, do it again. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. That is a, you know. It, you're not it, hiking, you're not having to like fairly snowshoe into the back no. country. You're getting up the mountain pretty damn quick. Oh, well, I mean, literally at the Col de Lotteray where we used to do a lot, I, I moved to Briançon to, to spend my time snow kiting <laughs> and developing, so-called yep. developing, mm -hmm. but in fact, you're just going out every day to, to fulfill your own desire. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was crazy because you, you'd see the people that had set off at six in the morning skinning up, you know, some slope there. You'd arrive at 8.30, you know, sun's coming up. We don't, we don't want to go and make it uncomfortable and be out in the cold, but let's yep. wait till the sun starts coming up. Great, you're there at 8.30. They've already been going for two hours. You've overtaken them in 10 minutes. It's crazy. You're at the top before they've even got three quarters of the way up. You've got the fresh lines. You've ruined the thing. <laughs> you've ruined the face by the time they arrive up. You're kind of like, oh, well, sorry. Sorry, guys, but this is what we're doing now. Yeah. You know, get on the program. It's the, this is the new thing. <laughs> it is nuts, isn't it? And you think, actually, because the, you know, the, the skinning is becoming even more popular that's really yeah. boomed like you know randonnée is what they call it in france isn't yeah. it? and they're they're really into it and split boards for snowboarding and stuff like that and you just sort of think well actually there's this tool that you're all missing yes that you're really all missing because if you're going off to hike six hours into the mountains to then have one run down you could be having six runs down and yeah. done by lunchtime yes exactly and it's it's odd that it hasn't transcended that because obviously when it when snowboarding was more about going on a ski lift i could very much see the ease of well it's just you pay your money and you're at the top and, and you do is. endless runs and it's just instant yeah. fun and you can plug and play whereas actually now with you know how much that ski touring and split boarding has come to the fore maybe there's maybe it's a bit like the wing the wing wing you know that we've had seen just, here like now the hydrofoils are there 
the yeah. wing wings come of age yeah. and so maybe now you know that that market has grown for the split boarding and the ski touring they'll maybe start to go oh you know what a kite that could be a good idea yeah but at the same time it it almost doesn't matter if it doesn't happen sort of big style as well because again unfortunately it takes skills yeah and you can see what the good guys are doing and it, it is incredible but if you're if you think you can just throw it out and get dragged up a mountain yeah not gonna happen <laughs> well good luck and uh hey if you're that guy with loads of skills and you can do that fantastic but uh there's there's a lot of things you need to know yeah yeah um, i mean i look at the videos and i've spent a fair bit of time in the back country and i just think I, this is the last place i want to be holding on to a kite you yeah. know well i'm still you know my, my big thing is that i prefer flying kites than i do you know i i'm not really a go to the top and land type of guy i'm a go to the top and then do massive jumps and try and fly down because uh, I've done plenty, plenty of sliding on the snow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm there for another reason. I love the big view. I love cruising up, up the side of mountains into really unusual places. But I just want to fly with the, you know, and jump and mess around with the kite up. I'm not bothered about landing and sliding. Packing it up and then skiing down. Done that. Yeah, done that. It's all right. Let's mess around with this thing. <laughs> See how high we can fly. Yeah. Well, I guess it's marrying, you know, kiting and paragliding, isn't it? Like you say, when, mm. they're, when they're jumping off the mountains. And snowboarding, yeah. And snowboarding. Skiing, it's it's like, all the sports it's I love together. It's all those sports you love, yeah. just chucking them all into one. Yeah, why would you want to ride the powder down when you can just soar over top of everyone? Yeah. And putting you into an amazing location, you know, somewhere unique, totally out the back with pristine environment around you. I mean, it's pretty inspirational. And as a company now, Ozone, you've got a pretty wide product range across, you know, yes. you do speed wings, yeah. paragliders, kites, paramotors, paramotors. then there's a yeah. whole, you know, within all those things, there's a whole range of products. Yeah. And I always think one of the things I like most about the brand is the fact that you've got this factory in Vietnam where you make all your own products. Yeah. And that's quite a rare thing in this it day is. and age. It's an incredibly rare thing in this day and age. You know? Yeah, I don't know how many there are actually who who sort of do what we do, but in terms of brands. But uh, it was undoubtedly the best decision we ever made. And that was down to Dave Pilkington. And did that come because when you started Ozone, you were getting your wings manufactured by another manufacturer and then yeah. you were, that always brings problems, doesn't it? Whether they're copying your designs and selling them to other people or the product, yeah. production's not quite what you want and exactly. they're making mistakes and it becomes frustrating. So it was yeah. a kind of born it, it, out of a necessity to... Yeah, it came, it came out of the fact that uh, paragliders need to be certified uh, for them to be... Oh, and that certification means that everything is measured yeah lines are measured distances are measured and when you can't get continuity in those measurements basically things can it be out certified. of certification so we very quickly found out that holy smokes you know this stuff isn't being made as accurately as we need it to be made you know we're in the business of keeping people alive and safe and safe and one of the most basic parameters is it has to be as the example was. Hey, they're not the, as the example was. So, you know, what are we doing? Or what's happening? Uh, one of those things you've got to take charge yourself. So after repeatedly trying to improve other people's systems, it was just like, this isn't going to work. You know, it's a communi communication breakdown. 
you have to be dedicated to wanting to deliver a better product. Yeah. They're just interested in making money as many as possible yeah. and and not really attention to detail. Uh, that was it. We'll start our own. So we started our own, which was uh, yeah, monumental. I was going to say probably a daunting process. I mean, absolutely. Even monumental. the location Vietnam, you know, most of the most of the products that we use in sport are manufactured in China. Yeah. I think Thailand's the big producer of windsurfing boards. Um, but yeah, so how did you come about with deciding where to go? Who was in, instrumental in kind of setting it up and making it happen? Um, Dave was the main man. Yeah. Uh, and the reason we, the reason Dave chose Vietnam, because we could have gone anywhere, the um, wages are higher in, it, higher in Vietnam than they are in China. Yeah. Uh, China, we were still dealing with the problem of and this is, you know, I don't want to be, it's not any form of disrespect to any nation, but the, the Chinese are maybe not as diligent and as um, caring as in their whole philosophy and mentality as the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese are very proud people and they're also very strong, resilient people and let's face it, if you look at their history, yep. they've stood up against they've some, some, some serious big countries <laughs> and uh, come out on top. So um, it was a choice to, you know, to sacrifice having potentially the best prices going to China and going to Vietnam and it costing us more, but having, better having a much of better quality of staff and people. And yeah, it it was amazing. It worked so well, and it works for us to this day. Yes, we are a slightly expensive brand, but there are many reasons to that expense. And if you look at the working conditions within our factory, it, it's absolutely you know if you're going to work in a factory that's producing any products like that, I, I truly believe that our factory is the nicest place to work you know air-conditioned clean environment we've got people going around sweeping up all the time uh, workers are offered to change their um, work routine to join other groups doing other things if they become sort of stale or bored um, we have social um, backup for them medical care dental care pensions so we haven't gone there to just exploit effectively a workforce. We've gone there and we've integrated and we are trying to improve the quality of their lives because the business that we make there improves the quality of our lives. Yep. And it shouldn't be a one-way street. You know, you should be... It, it's, yeah, it, it's, it has to be more than profit. If you're just doing it for, for profit, then sit at home and work the numbers on the stock exchange and don't screw anyone out of a, a, a good quality of life. If you're doing it uh, for the right reasons, then you should be worried about how well your staff are treated. Um, you know, we feed them uh, lunch and dinner if we're doing overtime, um, or they want to do overtime, so we try and work the system that it gives them overtime. We take them on holiday once a year, everyone goes together and has a lets the hair down and has a you know 
and that's a thousand. Together. That's a thousand. I was going to say because it's not a small factory, right? No, it's a thousand people that go out there and have you know we take on holiday for fun and let it's them nuts. let them play with the the things that they that, that, that they make. It's uh, yeah, so, so they, and they get yeah, like you say, they get to go try yeah, kiting, kiting and do all this and, stuff. Yeah, uh, and you know for sure, yes, we're still making a profit at the end of the day, but that's business, and everyone's kind of got to make a, a profit to live. But uh, it is a very nice thing to to see the, po the the very positive side of what we do, and I can safely say that we have enhanced um, a lot of people's lives, and we've we've st we've set people up in business. Yeah. Because people have been working with us. Uh, for instance, the guy that does our screen printing, he used to work for us. He w stopped working for us to set up his own screen printing business. He sets up the business. We all our business is with him. He only works for us. Yeah. And he's got his own crew now, and he's got his, his own, own standalone standalone business that survives from it. And various people have done things on the side, but wanted to be connected to us. And yeah, so it, it's been amazing. It's That's a really great, positive. Great part of what we've done. And so when you initially set it up, you've got a thousand employees now. Was there a skill base there for sewing and things like that? Because we're talking yes. about like there's this, you know, when you think about stitching a kite or even stitching a paraglider. I mean, I look at the, <laughs> I look at them and just go, well, I have no idea how you'd put that together. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a skill. Yeah. It's a skill set that you have to have. Yes. Was that skill set already existing there that you could tap into? I know, like in Slovakia, it used to be a really big fashion place where everyone got their fashion clothes made so there's a lot right. of sewers there yeah but now that's all died and that was one of the reasons I think crazy fly set up their factory because they've got a, a glut of people that can sew that, was that something that existed in Vietnam that uh, made it, it easier, was or did you have yeah. to do a lot of training and yeah working with people the main thing uh, for sure there was a uh, that there was plenty of people with uh, skills already because they they produce a lot of clothing and yeah you know there's all kinds of production things going on over there uh, not on the same scale as China, but it, yeah, it's, it, exists. It, 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 it exists. One of the reasons it's not the same scale as China because the uh, the wages are higher. So yeah. everyone's into profit nowadays. So go to China, go to China, and make it for less and make more money. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a there was a base of a, a decent workforce, pretty much ready to do the job. Our biggest problem has always been to, or is not not biggest problem, but one of the things we had to overcome was, we want people to point out mistakes, because if mistakes are pointed out during production, you can fix them. It doesn't end up in the customer's hands, and the biggest thing for us is to not have, for our reputation, also for the customer's peace of mind, you know, that the product is coming out as good as it can be. So it, it took a while to, to breed the culture of, um, yeah, don't hide anything. Let us know that no one's going to get a bollocking. No one, we're only interested in moving forward. And, yeah. You know, if something doesn't fit, just put your hand up. Don't make it fit. Because if it doesn't fit, we need to find out why it doesn't fit. Because that must mean someone else earlier on in the process isn't quite understood what they should be doing. So, and Dave is amazing at this. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so now we've got a, we've bred a culture whereby everybody understands what the goal is. Everyone is trying to, you know, throughout the whole company now, everyone is just trying to do, job should only be done properly, yeah. correctly. And if it 
and the good thing is the more you push that the more or the, the easier it is to recognize the things that aren't quite right or not perfect in the system because yeah it, it, it self-perpetuates itself yeah so as soon now as something we're almost to the stage where things touch wood can't go wrong because yep. it's blindingly obvious right well it was good there it's not good here what's the process in between it's that one yeah that's the problem right sort it out fix it and we're only interested in sorting it out we're not interested in who's responsible because that's not interesting it's solving the problem that's yeah. interesting getting the product right and uh, it's worked super well and um, you know we're still that there's always unforeseens that you can't cater for but generally we're pretty much on top of it workforce are happy um, we're happy yeah everything's I think it's a really yeah it's a, a massive string to your bow as a business because in this age where we're all talking about you know social responsibility and sustainability and being more conscious of how yeah. we're impacting the planet and I think as kite boarders um, or people that are involved in action sports you know we do sadly consume products that aren't great for the environment so if we can make differences elsewhere by mm. you know you know using reusable water bottles and avoiding single-use plastics and trying to you know yeah. if using better sun cream that's not poisoning the reefs and exactly. everything that we can do but then actually if you've got a brand that's you know being exceedingly sociable responsible in the way they're producing the equipment and that adds a huge you know benefit that well I think the first thing for everybody to understand and this is you know to your listeners and readers across the globe is that we don't want this to be a fashion industry there is no point to change your kite because it's got new colors or a new print and if that's really why you're buying kites because of the color and the print you actually need to look at yourself and understand that it's absolutely pointless you know it, it's rude we you should be and manufacturers as well uh, I, I'm not it, it's not because of what we've done or the way we approach it with the version strategy and trying to keep the product alive for longer it's because the products really good I can't supersede it within a year because it, it's taken us two years to get it to what it is yeah so and but this whole idea that every year there's some new new stuff, new stuff, you know, it, fundamentally and environmentally, it is it's unsustainable. Well, it's just rude. You yeah, know, it is downright rude. And the sport doesn't need it. We don't need to be a fashion sport. The whole sport should always be a product-based sport. Um, obviously, again, when the big corporates start coming in, it really is about just making money because. We know that there are a few brands that are into the building, make it look good, and sell it. Yeah. Sell the brand. Sell the is. company. Sell the yeah. company on. And there's it's been like a, a four-year cycle yeah. where they're just like, build it up, make it look great on paper, and yeah. then flip it. There's been a few big takeouts recently that are all based on that, and it's just like, guys, we need to... It, it is not wholesome. It's not productive. It's not good for the future of the sport. And that's, you know... The business is peripheral to the sport. If you don't maintain the sport, you don't have a business. We are all obliged to maintain the sport, and that's what we're, you know, we, we try and do. You know, we worry about the things, and we're trying to put things in place that mean that longevity of the sport is healthy. And you know, that's an obligation I believe to every manufacturer. 
but unfortunately especially at the moment it just seems that everyone's lost in this idea of just making money it's yeah like, guys and it's always just chasing the new you know new product year chasing new product year and i think you know you mentioned it there but we should probably talk about it a little bit more you know your version strategy which is just like we've got the rio it's a great kite when we've developed it enough in prototyping that it's ready for a new version or we believe there's a significant step forwards yeah. we'll release it but not until that point in time and we're not going to put a timestamp of one year or two years or whatever on no. that process and then that obviously for the consumer is a real benefit because you know it's like oh well i, I don't have to change my kite because the new one's not out i can keep it for a couple of years and it's still the current kite yeah and the thing is the exactly. kites are so good now that there isn't really that real leap forwards in technology or changing or no you know or, or, or you know development and so actually you know they should be using a kite for like two or three years until it's oh. worn out and can yes. be made into a bag or until totally. they can sell it to someone who just wants a cheap slightly used yeah. kite that they can then carry on yeah and that's um you know an important ethos that i think a lot of the brands could benefit from taking on because not only are you you're building this consumerism into the sport by having to change your kit every year. The amount of money and time that you're throwing into that process as well, or mm. maybe not throwing into that process and you're just putting new graphics on it. But the, even everything, you know, for sure the development of a product is difficult and expensive, but even the remarketing of a product is difficult and expensive. You know, you've got to go out, get your team riders going out there, doing a new video, blah, 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 plus all your pay or all your back groundwork that has to go on for the website the new pages there before you know it I mean as we always like to say within our group of people is that there's no easy change there's nothing that's easy you've literally there's so much backup required on everything nowadays because of the way that things are sold through you know social media side of things uh, you've got to have your this campaign sorted and that and you know it, it's like my god it's a logistical nightmare to to do every year uh, you know uh, the virgin strategy happened because we we didn't want to keep up with what they were trying to do we couldn't keep up with it it makes no sense keeping up with it you know like i say we've been working now on the rio since its last re release it's going to be almost two years i still don't have something right well guess what the rio is going to be staying the same until i've got something because yeah. If you don't like what we've got, no problem. There's another brand that's going to suit what you what you require. Carry on, but we can't bring something out for the sake of bringing something out. There's no need, you know. It's we know people like it, and you know, same with all the models. Unless we've got something better, there's there's no need to waste your time. Yeah, and we don't want to waste the customer's time or waste resources on making a load of hype about the same thing. You know, it's. Why bother? And then the other thing I think you do, which is quite um, unique, perhaps, I don't know many others that do it, is you have this interesting distribution method where you've got your business-to-business -business site where a shop, you know, so I, I spoke to Ian Hannay, who's the general manager the other mm -hmm. day about the wings, and we were talking about the wings, and you've got the new Wasp, which is coming out, and he was saying, oh, you know, I've heard that, you know, Duotone I think have sold 5,000 wings and I was like wow crikey and I said oh have you sold out of wings and he said well no of course not because we can never sell out of anything yeah. because you have your business to business site the customer can put an order in through it and then you can make it in your own factory to order and then ship it within a matter of days they can have the product I mean that's an incredible 
position to be in, not only for wastage and not having a, you know, oh, we've got to make 7,000 kites and mm. then you've got 2,000 sat on the factory floor and then you're having to resell them at exactly. 50% off, which then lowers the resale value. So then the consumer has to sell their Rio at, you know, half of 50% because you can buy a new one for 50% off. You know, that's a really interesting yeah. proposition. When did that sort of process come about and how hard was it to implement? Um, that came around with the factory and one of the main reasons was uh, firstly the other system of pre-ordering and you know massive deliveries you know you, you have to pre-order this many kites during the year you're gonna get them yeah regardless, regardless of, of it's windy or not whether windy you want them or not if the season's good or bad you are still gonna get delivered a thousand kites end of that's it um, so basically someone has to bank the money for that thousand kites we are such an organically grown company from nothing we don't have that kind of financial stability behind us we're very much a, a self-made company so we can't afford to bank everybody we don't want to bank everybody it's not our responsibility to bank people if you take away the potential for banking people suddenly the 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 reseller has to become responsible about his reselling it makes sense you know, if, the, if there's no consequence until, you know, you've got to pay 80, 90, 120 days later, you, you'll do anything until that 120 days is up and then suddenly you're like, holy shit, sell everything yeah. for whatever we can, we've got this bill to pay. That is not responsible business, not on anybody's scale. Um, and so, yes, we, we, did, we do what we do, which is basically... Uh, we produce to order only. That way there's no excess, there's no flooding the market, there's no um, price slashing halfway through the year because you realize we're not gonna sell this stuff. It, it's a classic of, you know, the big manufacturers are selling supposedly 35,000 kites. They might be selling 35,000 kites, but what they're not telling you is, we sold 10,000 actually at the right price and we've sold, you know, 25,000 at any price to get them that, gone out the store. That is not good business. That's not good for your customers. It's not good for your secondhand values. It's not good for your initial value because you are basically devaluing your own business. Why would you do that? But hey, uh, it's just a different model. We don't believe in it. They do. Carry on. We'll just keep doing what we do. And you know, we're not, we're not trying to be the biggest brand or sell the most because we're not interested in that. We're just interested in uh, producing product that people enjoy yeah and if they can connect with what we do and you know like I say we're obviously not a marketing machine uh, we don't have a 50,000 euro marketing budget um, and you know we're never going to put that much money aside anyway for that kind of thing we're much, much more interested in being proactive educating giving good product having a better business system having a sustainable business system looking into you know or trying to maintain uh, a healthy um, link and chain from manufacturing through to retailer yeah because in the long run um, we hope it's going to pay off for everybody not just us but we hope that these big companies understand what we're doing seeing that see that it's working and do the same thing because that would be the best thing for our sport because then our retailers are in a better position that means our schools are in a better position we need schools 
because without them, you know, are we no just going to expect... into the sport? Yeah. Well, people can come into it, but it's a lot more dangerous for everybody. And then you get a bad reputation because it's dangerous. And so you've got, you know, it's a big picture thing. Uh, and it's not an immediate, you know, everybody wants immediate um, results and financial satisfaction. Well, hey, you can have that, but it means that it might not be there in the future. Yeah. It's much better to look at it. We'll take what we can now and that's okay and don't be greedy, but let's make sure that that keeps coming for 20 years. Otherwise, know? well, we're going to be we're alive in 20 years, so why, let's yeah. plan for it. You yeah, know? let's make sure Instead we're still enjoying things. Mess it up just for, for today, yeah, you know, for, for our benefit right game. now. But, uh, you know, how many people are good at looking into the future? Not many. Yeah. So it is tricky, isn't it? It's just um, hopefully we're becoming more socially aware and that from even if it's just from a consumer point of view will filter upwards to a I corporate so. level and yeah, then they'll realize so. oh you know what people aren't going to buy our products because we're putting all these crap chemicals in our sun cream or yeah. you know we're just churning out stuff at a ridiculous for rate for the sake of it and then yeah. you know people are realizing going you know what i want to be a bit more socially responsible and i don't yeah. need to buy into that and then hopefully that affects some sort of change and then the last sort of thing I wanted to ask you about, Rob, which is probably a bit of personal self-indulgence, and that is, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning that your dad wouldn't let you ride a motorbike, yet, you know, you, you've ridden motorbikes at the highest level of what an amateur racer can do, which is mm. the Isle of Man TT, which I'm sure yeah. most people have heard of, which is the craziest race. If you've never heard of it, Google Isle of Man TT and prepare to have your heart in your mouth. When did you start getting into racing motorbikes and, and being allowed motorbikes? Or was it a time when you just went, no, that's it, I'm getting my own motorbike, so do you? Yes, well, um, it's one of those things. Uh, I got into it when I finally had time to get into it. Yeah. You know, I get very consumed by my next thing. And so uh, up until sort of seven years ago, uh, I just didn't really have time. I've always had motorcycles around me, yeah. uh, you know, road riding and dirt bike riding and stuff. Um, but I'd never been to a track, uh, as, you know, a, a road circuit as yeah. such, or a, a street circuit as such. So um, I had a track day on a, just on a Ducati Monster at the time. And... I was always a bit of a loon on the roads, <laughs> so and I've always followed MotoGP, yeah, and been involved. I've been really in interested. I just love how in, how the rider of a motorcycle is engaged in physically in where that motorcycle goes. Whereas in a car, you're just turning a steering wheel, but on a bike, you're leaning off it. You're you know, you've got to move side to side. You're, yeah. you are you're part of yourself it. around. You're part of making it happen. And also, there's no cage around you, so there's actually real consequences. And I love sports with real consequences because uh, in this day and age, actually, there's not enough danger and there's not enough acceptance of danger. It's like, you know, oh, watch out. You know, parents nowadays are so paranoid about their kids climbing up anything. Let, let, them climb up let the little bugger off. climb up everything. Let him fall off. Okay, there's going to be a broken arm here and there, but you know, don't let your fears be your kids' fears. You've yep. got to go out there and just let this stuff happen. So there's not enough danger. So I love sports that are dangerous, where you get to choose how much you are going to push. How much it. you want to take here. You know, you can walk the thin line, but you know you're on the thin line. Um, 
and so I just got into motorcycling because oh, racing because it sort of just seemed like my god I love this circuit stuff because you can really rally the bike and not worrying about a car coming yeah, the opposite get, end get you those angles use all the tarmac to yeah. get round suddenly uh, so I got involved in in just club racing and realized that I'd sort of wasted some years or missed some years that I should have been doing this so I just got really passionate about racing on the circuits and then I realized that if I wanted to understand my real level because I sort of had a bit of a natural ability in there somewhere I haven't really got a natural ability to be really fast but I've got a, a a sort of a relatively good flowing ability on a motorcycle I can ride one pretty properly but not necessarily as good as the good guys and uh, I wanted to measure where I was in terms of skill and ability so I started uh, riding at the Isle of Man because uh, at 45 there's nowhere else you can go to, to measure up against the good guys and, and do you have to qualify for that? Is it something oh, yeah. I can't imagine you can just rock up at the Isle of no, Man no, and they're no, going to no, let no. you whiz around. Yeah, that yeah. must have been a sort of a process to even yeah. get to that level. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, dedicated to riding the New Zealand National Championships and every single event there was. I was doing all kinds of track days and um, California Superbike schools and I was heavy on getting as much experience as I could. And I, I you know, I went hard out on that. Um, then went to the Isle of Man for the first time and uh, found out about where my level was and what real riding was about on the roads. And Where was your level? Pitched somewhere in the middle or were you like, wow? Well, my level was... was pretty much at the bottom. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so you were like, right, I thought I, I thought I was pretty quick around the track and then I've rocked up here and it's like... This is another ball game. So it's taken me five years of learning and uh, I'm sort of, yeah further away from the back of the field but not far away but it doesn't matter because uh, holy shit you know it, it's it's a place that you can only measure up in terms of your ability and if you're lacking in some ability and even if that's just balls to to go balls to the wall then it's not the kind of place that you can just magic sum up yeah you know, it's the most honest place in the world you've either got it or you haven't that that's where you are boy suck it up and uh, it's been fantastic I love it you know I don't mind rattling around at the back because even rattling around at the back there it's, it's well even insane. if you're rattling around at the back you're still on a whole another level for most motorcycle oh, riders yeah. who could never even dream of even qualifying to go to something like the TT it's, you have to overcome so much uh, there's a massive amount of skills to learn the course is incredibly long it's super bumpy it is mega engaging. I mean, you're basically meditating for, you know, one, one lap takes you somewhere close to 20 minutes, say, uh, 19 minutes odd. Uh, one lap is that long. A race is four laps. So you're just... Yeah, that's a long time to be flat out on a motorbike. Flat out in the zone. Um, and you're averaging speeds. Oh, but so intense because your life is absolutely on the line in your hands and it's so on the line it's hard to recognize how on the line it is until it goes wrong and then you 
very yeah. aware of, <laughs> yeah. of, of and how you've, on the line you've had is. it go wrong not so yes, recently. Uh, I, I thought I was going to have, um, because I'm quite a safe rider, I, I know it, it, it's all relative, but I know that I don't have the ultimate ability. So I can only ride to my ability. I don't try and go faster than I'm comfortable with because I know where that leads. And it, it actually doesn't even lead to pleasure because it, it's scary, you know, it's really scary. So uh, yeah, but uh, last year at the Classic TT, I managed, or I unfortunately got behind someone who had a bit of an engine failure right in front of me. We're in fifth gear going pretty fast. Uh, I didn't have time to do anything because he's, I was just already very close. It was as if he was going backwards, right in front of me, just, just oh reversing into you. Yeah, reversing but, into me. But you're both probably doing over a hundred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just clipped him, and that sent me off the course. And the next minute, I was flying through the air, going past him, flying through the air, overtaking him. Yeah, overtaking <laughs> him without my bike, thinking, "Oh no, I'm not going to finish this race because I was doing so well. I was going to, I could have got a top ten finish." And to me, that would have been... I love what know. goes through your head when you're wiping it out and you yeah. know it's bad. It's <laughs> yeah. not like, oh, this is going to hurt. It's this like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. I've got yeah. that booked in. This is really awkward. And then it's yeah. tarmac sky, tarmac sky. Well, I didn't even have any tarmac sky. I hit the ground head first and fortunately knocked myself out, which was the best thing beautiful that can thing to happen. I happened to knock myself out and mess myself up 500 metres from the helicopter. Oh, the, gonna do it. the paramedic was watching the whole thing and was already running before I'd even come to a standstill. You know, I was just, I was, I have that particular thing where I was just so lucky. Yeah. You know, I, I could have easily been dead. Somehow it all came good and I only broke my back and smashed my foot and had some pretty bad concussion and that was it. That was it. And I was back eight months later doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I can see why your dad didn't want you to ride motorbikes, Rob. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, so can I, you know, honestly, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not fit for a lot of things, but we kind of, it's a bit of a standing joke. Uh, I'll always have to push everything to the limit, to my limit. I can't help it. So yeah. shit happens. But the parents are now pretty au fait with the, the routine. Yeah, you know, we've got the call. He's in hospital, but yeah. he's still alive. <laughs> I think mine have the same sort of relationship. They're just like, oh yeah, Bruce, done. What's he done this time? All yeah. oh, right, where is he? What's he up to? Yeah, fine. Yes. They're kind of used to it after so many trips. Exactly. To the hospital. You just like, okay. and I think we were saying yesterday, if you you know if you want to do these fun things, it's a bit cliche to say you've got to pay to play, but some point you know if you just sit on a sofa all your life watching netflix then yeah you're probably not going to have an accident but you might well have a heart attack or you know yeah, various you know, well, things will be wrong with your health and equally if you go and do all these crazy stuff then every now and then you're going to have a big slam and you're going to have to deal with recovery for that yeah, and yeah well i i used to be all about safety and trying to save everybody from themselves but now i've recognized that there's seven and a half billion people on the planet that's already way too many <laughs> so anybody that wants to live on the periphery and do some dangerous shit that's absolutely borderline, we should be encouraging them. You know, we're, we're, for some reason we've built this paranoia against, you know, against the idea of anything dying before it's time. Holy shit, you know, what about living? Yeah. You know, how about just taking it to the max and, and enjoying it? Living it right on the edge because 
uh, you know, a sedentary, non-exciting life to me personally. I, I, if that's your thing, no problem. Get yourself all over it. But for anybody else that wants to live on that outer edge of what's acceptable, let's encourage them. You know, so what? The guy died doing it. And, you know, it's the other cliche. Yeah, but he died doing what he loved. No, he died living. Yeah. He, he was in the moment doing what he wanted to do. Just forget all this, oh my God, rest in peace. It's such a tragedy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, my God, you're just, you're missing the point. You know, life doesn't really have a value unless you're living it. Yeah. And if people want to live it on the hard, you know, on the hard edge, then great encouragement. If people want to live it watching Netflix and not doing much, no problem, carry on. You know, it's all good, but we do need to open ourselves or we need to open our minds to the idea that other people want other things. Yeah, Let's and let you, it can't, you can't have a sort of, you know, a government then banning the Isle of Man TT because a few people had oh, nasty no. accidents because actually, you know, where do you end up? Then we're all just sat around watching Netflix because in yeah. 100 years' time, no one's allowed to do anything dangerous. Well, also, it's massive amount of perception, you see. The difference with the Isle of Man compared to daily life is those, some people will say to me, oh my God, how do you do that? It's so dangerous. At that particular moment, they're drinking a beer. The difference with the Isle of Man is the danger is imminent. You get on that motorcycle and until you get off it, for sure, it is life, it's potentially life-threatening. Drinking that drink or smoking that cigarette doesn't take its toll until 20 years down the line. So it's not imminent. The danger is absolutely there, but because it's not on your doorstep or in your face, it's perceived to be okay. Yeah. Well, the net result is the same, dead people. <laughs> so just get to grips with it and let it happen. You yeah. Know, no, everyone's the safety police nowadays on everything. It's just like, man, just, it, does it, has it affected your life? No. All yeah. right, well, let him carry on doing whatever yeah. crazy shit he wants to do, you know? I always say, as long as he's not endangering anyone or making anyone else's life bad, yeah. crack on, do what you want to do, exactly. and as long as you're enjoying it, then that's yeah. great, bully for you, no matter what that is. If that's, yeah. you know, going raving all weekend or driving a car at breakneck speeds around a track or throwing yourself off a mountain in a wingsuit, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever you want to do, enjoy it. We're not here for long, are we? And no, think, we're not. I think we're you'd not. ever, you know, you'd always just look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done that, take the chance. and. Mm try it and do yes. it I'm, and I'm working on not looking back and going i wish i'd done that yeah well you've ticked off quite a few amazing things in your life i mean you know world champion in various wing sports snow kiting kite surfing to a high level setting up a huge company that's socially responsible and trying ri to be socially riding the isle of man tt which i think is you know probably um yeah probably the pinnacle of human uh, performance stupidity. really yeah performance <laughs> and stupidity you know it can't be much else on the planet that can take things to that kind of limit uh, if i if i what if i thought there was anything i would have to you'd do have it. to go and have a go at it one of the beauty uh, you know uh, life generally is a, a massive learning discover or i take it as being a big learning sort of experience and a discover a discovery experience and it, it's actually I've always been looking for this thing that gives me this ultimate buzz and it, I feel so lucky that I've ended up at the Isle of Man because I don't have to search anymore. Yeah. I, I believe I'm well qualified of buzz, you know, in understanding buzz factor. I'm absolutely sure that's the top. 
that's the pinnacle. Uh, I don't, and I can't even imagine more of a buzz than that because it was, it is huge, you know, it is so engaging and ridiculous that, okay, yeah, everyone's going, well, what about wingsuits? Well, you know, wingsuit flying is pretty cool, but it's not fast. I'm on a motorbike doing 300 Ks less than a meter off the ground. Yeah. A wing That's about suit, as perimeter flying as you can get, yeah, isn't a, it? A wingsuit's doing maybe 160k at a meter or whatever off the ground. I'm missing 150k, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for proximity flying, you can't really get better than just sitting on a motorbike. Sitting on a motorbike at 300k, you're going, wow. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, is, it is definitely a buzz. Yeah. Rob, that has been fantastic. I've really Good. enjoyed that. That's well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it too. It's good to uh, to have a real conversation about real things. Yeah, well, it's nice just not to sit and talk about products all the time, isn't it? Which is oh, what we've yeah. been doing a week. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's also been inspiring. It's it's been lovely to you know come to this event and see so many people enjoying the sport, enjoying you know that all the brands are here. Everyone's it, it's just been you know it's been very healthy. Yeah, and it's a great event. You know, if anyone's listening, get yourself over to the. Hood River for the AWSI because you know it's a it's a great coming together of people within the sport and from an insider looking out you can only see positive things coming from it you know all yeah. the brands are working towards a common goal of improved safety and in yeah. improved equipment for people to enjoy and putting smiles on people's faces and exploring new avenues with things like the wings so yeah I think we're in a healthy period of time Rob, yeah likewise thank you very much no worries thank you Ruth. So there we have it, episode 12 of season two in the bag. I really hope you enjoyed that one. Um, it was a real treat just to listen back to it the other day when I did the edit on it because I always um, go through and just check them and cut out some of the intros and outros, but generally I don't cut anything out and um, there was nothing I needed to cut from this one really. It was all pure gold and I really enjoyed it and I'm sure you did too. As ever, if you enjoyed that one, please give these a like and a share. Um, it makes a real difference when people are giving me good feedback and also the more people that listen to them, it makes me a little bit more encouraged to keep recording them and putting them out there. It takes quite a bit of time to put these together. It's the recording of them is easy. It's the sitting down and finding that quiet moment to even just record an intro like this. I'm currently sat outside in the garden, so you might hear a few birds tweeting in the background, but I guess that's au naturel. Anyway, um, I'm going to try and get one out for you fairly quickly because I appreciate everyone's in lockdown, probably got a bit more time on their hands, maybe doing some longer cycle rides or some longer walks and want something to listen to. Probably not many long car journeys going on and definitely not many flights, but I'll try and get a couple more of these out over the next few weeks um, for you all to enjoy. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back soon with more from the Intriguing Beings podcast with me. Rue Chater.